Welcome to the Catalyst Church Podcast. We're here up in Humboldt County, California. We're glad you're with us. We hope that you're blessed and that you find peace and grace in the Word of God today. Hi, friends. It is good to see you today, and I'm glad that you're joining us for this sermon. Uh, We are in a series on the wilderness, so we're in Lent right now. This is the third Sunday of Lent, and we are looking at different wilderness narratives. These are the stories in scripture that bring the people of God into places that feel desolate or lonely. They might feel isolated. It could be marked by a season of loss or lack. Usually throughout the season of Lent, somebody people usually give up um, different comforts for to to be in the space of like wondering or um, being in solidarity with Christ before we get to that Easter Sunday service that we celebrate Christ's resurrection from the dead. So it's marked by those 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness uh, before he started his ministry. So we've been looking at different wilderness narratives and today uh, we'll be looking at Genesis 21 uh, verses 1 to 21 and uh, Pastor Jason will read it for us in just a minute here. But uh, I wanted to give you just a heads up about this. This is kind of like a sequel to last week's message. If you didn't watch last week's, you're welcome to look at it at your own time. Um, but this is a time of looking at, at the story of Hagar and Ishmael. Uh, and looking at what their experience in the wilderness was like. So I want to, we'll read the passage. You're welcome to close your eyes as it's read, or uh, you could be in a posture of receiving, um, or you could follow along in your Bible as Pastor Jason reads that passage to us today. Thank you for reading that. You know, I was thinking about our American culture and how much culture determines so much of how we view the world around us, like how to behave, what to say, how to say it, what kind of hierarchical systems we're supposed to be uh, stepping into and playing by the rules, what kind of positions of power is there, who's in control, Uh, different kinds of cultural determinations of our gender and our racial constructs. Our culture tells us how to interact with, how to navigate through these decisions that we've made or even decisions that have been made for us, right? Like we all live and we've all been raised in a certain kind of culture. And most of us that are listening to this are probably raised or have have grown up in the United States. We're all, even though like we're all raised in the United States, we still have different traditions and we're, we're raised with different home life or expectations. There's different socioeconomic levels within each of us that are listening in right now. There's different beliefs that we had growing up or that we have today, different uh, traditions, disciplines, the way that we've been disciplined and raised by our family members. Like all of these are influential areas that bring a certain kind of perspective to the world around us, right? Either right from wrong or good from bad. And our world view has been shaped, each of ours has been shaped by our upbringing and our upbringing has been shaped by our American culture. And it's important for us to see that because oftentimes we miss how our culture influences 
the ways that we interact with the world. Like there's our, in our American culture, there's certain opportunities that are built into it, like uh, with capitalism, with our immigration and how we've had, that, how we are a country of immigrants, um, our desire for certain rights against wrong, like our desire to right the wrongs, uh, to be a better country than we were in the past, to move forward differently than our past was like. But in the same breath, friends, our American culture is built on white supremacy, on racism, on indigenous expulsion, on American exceptionalism, on patriarchy, on Christian superior superiority over all other religions, right? There's, um, there is a reality that, that the extremely wealthy few makes decisions for the rest of us. Can both sides of America be true of the same America, the same, the different sides of the same American coin? Can they be true, right? That there's, America can be a great nation that works to right her wrongs if she's willing to see, while America is also able to ignore the wrongs that she chooses not to see. Friends, we are all influenced. We are all shaped by this culture we live in for good and for not so good. I am a product of how I was raised. I am a white, cisgendered female. Uh, I am a, I am straight, I am married, all of these things add to a certain kind of privilege that I get to live into. I was raised female in a male-dominated world. Uh, women were really relegated to the kitchen and to help out the men in any circumstance possible. There was always food on my table. I was raised by loving Christian parents who are still married. I was homeschooled, I was nurtured, I was shown what hospitality looks like. All of these things affect my view of myself, my view of society and what I think is the way society is right or wrong or whatever. Um, and it affects my view of scripture. The way I read scripture is read through the lens of who I am and how I was raised. Now there's obviously certain traumas and life experiences that can shift and mold each of our cultural experiences, but the dominant culture we live in is very hard to divorce ourselves from. Sometimes we have to do the work of understanding our own cultural lenses to see how other cultures influenced people as well. And so our, our Bible is thick with cultural references and nuance. We can read it at face value. Like you could, you can open up your book, your Bible, you could point to the middle or wherever it is, wherever your finger lands, and you can read the word of God and gain all sorts of truth and wisdom and encouragement. You can gain more experience of who God is through the word of God as you are reading it at face value. But to understand God's character even deeper, we must look at the cultural expectations and the ways that people lived during the day that that scripture was written. It was written for a certain people and a certain time. It still has meaning for us today and it still influences us today, but we have to understand it for the people that it was written to originally. So this passage from Genesis that we just read, it, you know, honestly, it feels a little barbaric. It feels very unjust, doesn't it? 
And it's important to read these stories from each involved person's perspective. So um, I encourage you when you open your Bible, when you do your morning devotionals, whenever you read God's word, look at it from each of the characters that it's written towards and for, uh, each of the characters in it, and kind of read what each character would have experienced from their perspective. Sometimes it takes a little bit of imaginative reading to get there, but I think that God has created us as creative imaginative people and so we have the opportunity and the right really to read our imagination into god's word allow it to become alive in a different way so i want to read it from sarah's perspective for a minute here now she is an old woman she's about 90 years old when this passage is written she is um her her identity and her worth not just sarah's but this was just like in general when it came to females in this time of age it, it, the the identity and worth of a of a of a female woman um, was held in her offspring in the children she could bear so for sarah as a barren woman whose womb was left empty for so long her identity is scarred and marred by that and i get it i mean i am a barren woman as well. I have never given birth to a child. We have grown our family through adoption, but still my womb remains empty. And so I understand to some way, in some way, like how heartbreakingly difficult it was to be Sarah, especially during that time. She was fiercely protective of herself and what little power she had. She and her husband, Abraham, if you read other parts of the scriptures of this passage, these passages in Genesis, what you will see is that it, it seems like from my perspective, Abraham and Sarah have kind of this unhealthy, codependent, almost toxic relationship with each other. Um, she had complete ownership and control over her slaves, uh, specifically over her slave, Hagar. And Sarah knew that Hagar's son, would get a double inheritance compared to her own son, Isaac. And once Isaac was weaned, everything changed. And the reason it changed was because when a baby, when a child was weaned, no longer breastfeeding, it meant that that child had a much higher chance to thrive and reach adulthood. So this adulthood perspective greatly increased for Sarah. And at that point she's like, this is, this is the one. We don't need this other child. We are good with the one that I have bore to Abraham. And so, you know, we see the, the scripture, it says that, um, it says that Ishmael was, was mocking or playing or whatever, but that word mocking really just means playing. It means affectionate. It actually means laughter, uh, kind of like Isaac's name is meaning laughter. And so there, there's this, maybe, maybe Sarah saw this. Maybe she didn't like how Ishmael took to her, to his brother. Maybe Ishmael was paying too much attention to Isaac. Maybe she feared that there'd be too much family happiness between everyone. Maybe that made her uncomfortable. But we know that Sarah had ultimate control over Hagar. Even though Hagar was Abraham's wife as well, and Sarah sent Hagar away, and she sent her son away with nothing. Slavery and ownership of a human being may be a cultural standard of that day, 
but mistreating a person and causing harm on their body and on their mind and on their spirit is injustice throughout the ages. Now we could read it from Abraham's perspective as well, right? He had the finally had everything his heart desired. Remember two weeks ago, we talked about Abraham being met by God and God said, I'm your protector, I'm your provider. And Abraham said, yes, thank you, but I want more. I want what you promised me. You promised me this great family. You promised me children and I don't have that. Well, at this point in the story, he has wealth, he has influence, he has authority, he has power, and he has children. He has two sons whom he loved. He probably mapped out what life would look like moving forward. He probably had a, like this dream board that said what he could eventually accomplish through his two sons whom he loved. His lineage was healthily intact. And yeah, there was some animosity between his wives, but everything else was going to plan until Sarah's understandable insecurity demands a new storyline for another person. Friends, isn't that the truth about our insecurity? My insecurities can easily write a new storyline for somebody else, for my church, for my kids, for my spouse and my friendships and my extended families, when I speak out my insecurities, when I say, here's one, when I, if I tell my children, no, you may not have a relationship with your birth family, based on my own insecurities, I am writing a different storyline for my children. That is not fair and it is not mine to write for them. That is me putting my insecurities on top of my children and that is not my role in their life. And we can look at these stories and we can justify certain behavior because the culture around them justifies it, right? Because, because we could look at these stories and see that Abraham and Sarah are some of the greats. They are like, they are the bedrock of God's chosen people. Like, of course, they are our heroes. We, and honestly, we tend to overlook the shadow sides of the greats, of, of often placing them as heroes and ignoring their faults. We do this all the time, friends. We do this with presidents, especially past presidents, not seeing any of their faults. We do this with authors or pastors. We even do this with our parents sometimes, right? Like it's not until later on in life that we have to uncover all these different issues that we have been brought into being because of our parents who we once idolized and then we realized that they are faulty people and our children will also need to uncover things about the way that we are parenting them. And, and that is why we love therapists. Thank you, Jesus, for a good counselor. <laughs> but at times, each of these greats, these heroes, these people that we admire and look up to, they, they, their insecurities has caused them to justify certain behaviors that harm other people. And sometimes we'll even say it's a cultural thing. Like their harmful behavior was okay because they were a product of their culture and they didn't know any better. 
Friends, I think it's okay to acknowledge the harmful behavior of the greats that have come before us without throwing them away in the process. Is there a way to hold on to the good while either acknowledging the injustices done by our heroes of the past while also demanding reparation from our heroes today? And to use a more current example of our fallen heroes, and you could really put any name into this, my friends, but you know, I think of, of Bill Hybels. He is the pastor or was the pastor at Willow Creek Church, an incredible church out in Chicago. Is it enough for Bill Hybels to slink out of the spotlight, no longer writing or speaking, to quietly stand to the side, maybe just retire early? Is it enough for him to do that, to no longer take up airspace? Or should we demand more for his victims? Is it enough to lose a job or should there be reparations where his victims are seen as people who deserve an apology? And Bill Hybels' sermons, his books, his leadership has uplifted and encouraged countless people. I don't think he should be canceled or we should burn his books or we should just write, like unwrite him from society or from, from history. I don't think that's the state, the, the case, but, but shouldn't he, he shouldn't stay comfortably quiet while his victims suffer on the side. I think the reason that a story like Hagar's is included is because she was a victim who never received an apology. Things weren't made right for her and she often gets forgotten in this great and mighty story of Abraham and Sarah. So we will tell her story because God told her story. The culture seemed to allow for insecurity to write a slave's storyline, but I think God was reshaping culture through Hagar and still reshapes culture today through the Hagars today, like mistreated women, like marginalized poor people, like ostracized LGBTQ folk and black indigenous people of color in America. Stories like Hagars can inform how we engage with people unlike those that we grew up with or even understand. Hagar's story tells of redemption, of gritty determination, of, of strength that came from a powerless woman and a fiercely strong mother. What I want us to see today in Hagar's story, friends, I want you to get this. What I want you to see in Hagar's story today is how God uses culture to connect with humans, but God isn't held by culture. God isn't bound to culture. God is bound to justice. And sometimes God uses culture to get to justice. And sometimes God flips culture around to get to justice. Everything in Hagar's story is God flipping culture on its head because God is a God of justice. So Hagar, she was a powerless foreign slave woman who probably was very young when she was brought into Sarah's ownership. She lived in a patriarchal world where her bodily autonomy, her very self belonged to other people. We looked at this a lot last week. 
And while she was an Egyptian and probably purchased out of Egypt, from Egypt, where there was this very strong matriarchy that was present, she had no hope of getting back there or finding freedom. In a culture where slaves and women had no voice and no autonomy, we read in Genesis 16 that about God telling Hagar that she will become the mother of more descendants than she can even count. A word limited to men and given to Abraham right before her. It's this parallel language that was, that was limited to men. And then Hagar, we see in Genesis 16 that Hagar is given this power to name God, declaring God is the one who sees her. And then in the same passage, God promises that her son and her family won't be, won't be slaves. They will eventually live free in a culture where this opportunity did not happen. In a culture where slaves took their slave holders God, so like her God would be Abraham's God, Hagar names this God for her own, not with the name of her slaveholders. In a culture where women didn't have power to name their children, God gave Hagar the name for her son, Ishmael. And what we see in the story is that Abraham actually later removes that power from Hagar by naming him Ishmael, but she still gets to keep that name that was given to her by God. And when Hagar and Ishmael were thrown out of their home without adequate provisions for actual survival, God opened Hagar's eyes to see water and hope with new life and potential for what could be. Now in this story about this time, Ishmael is about 17 years old when Hagar finds herself providing for her son and living kind of this nomadic life in the desert. Her son uh, becomes strong. He becomes able-bodied. He becomes able to protect both of them. And she assumes, she continues to assume all these like male roles, this like cultural flipping that's happening. She assumes a male role by choosing an Egyptian wife for her son in a culture where this would be unheard of. Friends, throughout the Bible, what we see is that there's two kinds of people. There are those who are chosen and those who are called. So we look at the story of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and we say, well, yes, but God had a different plan for, for Isaac. He, he was chosen by God. Sometimes those who are called and those who are chosen look differently. Both Isaac and Ishmael were called by God. Isaac was chosen for a certain way of living, a way of being in this world. God chose Isaac, chose Abraham and the descendants through Isaac to then point the rest of the world to the purposes of God. They were meant to be some sort of a signpost as the people of God, the chosen people of God. But Ishmael was called just like Isaac was called. In the midst of the chosen, there are stories like Lot's, like Esau, who was called or to told by Jacob that, that when Jacob saw Esau, he saw the face of God. There's the stories of Hagar and Ishmael. I once read how our chosenness doesn't mean that we have a corner on God. 
and it doesn't negate calling. God had a calling on Hagar and Ishmael's life where actually Ishmael later becomes the father-in-law to Esau years later. And in 1 Corinthians 5, we read about this very wealthy and very established tribe of people who clashed with the Reubenites. And these people were called the Hagarites in a culture where Dan is the ancestor of the Danites, where Ephraim is the ancestor of the Ephraimites, where Edom is from Edomites, and Moab for the Moabites, and Ammon for the Ammonites, and Midian for the Midianites. Theologian Lee Starr asks in the early 20th century, why should we deviate from the common rule when we come to the Hagarites? Friends, in a culture where Hagar shouldn't have survived, God helped her thrive. And while this doesn't negate the injustice that she experienced, God helped make a way for her. She was bold. She was courageous. She was brave in the midst of her fear and uncertainty and despair that a wilderness life can bring. She held both fear and courage. She walked forward into uncertainty, into a wilderness life with the God who saw her, who heard her, who provided for her. God flipped that dominant and unjust culture on its head for Hagar's sake and pointed to another way forward. And it's not for thousands of years before we get Paul writing that there is neither Jew nor Greek or Gentile. There's neither slave nor free or male or female under Christ Jesus. We are all one in Christ. But even still today, friends, we are fighting against our American culture that is bent on white privilege, on racism, on economic disparity, on moral and ethical permissiveness, on insecurity and self-hatred. Our culture has the ability to shape and form and influence our minds in ways that can harm others, can harm ourselves, can harm this planet and, and truly harms our relationship with God. In, in a very me first world where anything goes, I think God is inviting us to see another way of interacting with and moving in this world. One where we trust in God's love for ourselves and for other people, where we get to receive God's love for ourselves and work to bring that love to other people, especially those that are very different from us. And when we get it wrong, when we hurt others, when we mar the image of God, God asks us to turn away from this shaping, forming, and influencing culture back to the purposes of God. This is called repentance. God is reforming and reshaping and renewing our minds and the ways that we interact with people who might be unlike us, especially those who have less power than us. Sometimes, friends, God uses our culture 
for God's purposes, but God isn't bound to our culture and will lovingly stand on the side those our culture oppresses or silences or harms like the Hagars and the Ishmaels in this world. May we have eyes to see and ears to hear what God is doing and may we respond in ways that are loving and life-giving and may we turn away from our culture that perpetuates the opposite. Grace and peace to you today and always. Amen.